Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. And we're joined by Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, great to catch up with you again. The world got more interesting since the last time we talked. Well, it seems to be getting more interesting or maybe more frustrating, but a little bit of both. Some ways more encouraging, too. I mean, we've certainly seen a strong stand in Ukraine, stronger than most people were expecting. So we'll talk about that a little later on in the program. But for the first hour, I thought we might just look at the president's State of the Union address last night. After all, that's a Constitution issue. The Constitution in Article 2 says that the president shall from time to time advise as to the State of the Union. It doesn't say he's to do it once a year, but that's been a tradition for a long, long time. question is, were there going to be any surprises in the State of the Union address of this year? And Honestly, I'd say the one big surprise is that there weren't any surprises. When I say that, what I mean is that the administration, by just about everybody's evaluation except for Biden himself, has been a disaster this last year. Problems with the economy, problems at the border, problems with Afghanistan, now with Ukraine. And one would think that the president might think it is time for a reset and to use the State of the Union address as an opportunity to start moving the nation in a different direction, recognizing the direction they did before didn't fail, but he didn't. No surprises, no changes. And I think the reason for this, probably a couple of reasons. One might be that he's not capable of making such changes himself, but the other might be that the radical left has such a grip on the administration, whether they have that grip on Biden himself, I don't know, but upon his administration, that he is not capable of making such changes, even if he should want to. One of the things that I found interesting was tendency, of course, all presidents do this, I guess, but a great tendency to take credit for things that he had nothing to do with, or very little to do with, but in this case, to take credit when, in fact, he had tried to go in the opposite direction. At one point in the address, he makes the statement that we spent months building a coalition of other freedom-loving nations in Europe and the Americas to the Asian and African continents to confront Putin. Yeah, where's the evidence of that? And then he goes on to say, like many of you, I spent countless hours unifying our European allies. We shared with the world in advance what we knew he was planning and precisely how he would try to falsify and justify his aggression. Just a week before Putin's aggression, Biden was telling us that he wasn't going to do that. Now, I can't fault him too much on that. Most people didn't think Putin was going to go that far. I myself thought Putin would probably take some aggressive action to take back the Dunbar region, Donetsk and Luhansk. 
But as far as a full-scale invasion of Ukraine with the intent of toppling the Ukrainian government, I didn't think that was going to happen, and hardly anybody else did either. But now Biden is claiming that he has been for months warning our allies of what Putin was going to do when, in fact, he was just as surprised by them as everybody else and caught as unprepared as anybody else. So State of the Union address doesn't really indicate much of any change in the administration's direction, which tells me that they're going to continue to be headed down the road toward a disaster. One thing that was interesting in the State of Union address, though, is that Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia was sitting with the Republicans. Now, how much significance to attach to that, I'm not entirely sure. But I would simply note that Senator Manchin is from West Virginia, and West Virginia and Alabama were the two states east of the Mississippi that went most heavily for Trump in the last election, and West Virginia has leaned very heavily Republican for the last couple of decades. And anyway, so whether he is sensing a change in the wind or whether he is feeling personally uncomfortable in the Democrat Party, it's hard to say. I don't think that Manchin is a conservative by the way you and I would define the terms. I don't think he's a radical liberal either. But I can see where he's feeling uncomfortable in the Democratic Party. And if this indicates a change of parties, it's possible. It could possibly, maybe more likely, in my opinion, indicate an intention that he will withdraw from the Democratic Party and caucus or consider himself an independent and then caucus with the Republicans. And that could be a very significant development. Because right now, the margin in the Senate is 50-50, with Vice President Kamala Harris then casting the deciding vote for the Democrats, which means then that the Democrats control the President pro tem and every one of the committee chairmanships. And if Manchin were to do that, if he were to caucus with the Republicans, it would then be 51-49, And that would mean that Republicans would take over the president pro tem. They would take over the chairmanships of every one of the committees. And those committee chairmen have a great deal of power to determine what gets before the floor and what does not. And so I think that could make a great deal of difference then as to the direction of the Senate between now and the upcoming election. One of the things I think we're seeing, too, is that The radical left believes that they have only until the November elections in which to push their agenda through, and that there's a good likelihood that they will lose Congress in the November elections, and so if they don't get it done before then, that their chances are lost. And I think there's good reason to think that's correct, but the result of this, I think, is that they have been pushing their agenda more radically than they would otherwise, and I think to a large extent that has been backfiring on them. And at any rate, I'm more optimistic for the state of the country simply because the Biden administration has failed to get its agenda through for the most part. One thing that they tried to do too in this past year, their past week, I should say, is 
they tried to adopt an abortion bill. This would be a bill that would legalize abortion up till birth in all 50 states all across the country. This would be a federal law. And, of course, federal laws, if they are constitutional, supersede the laws of the states. So any states that try to restrict abortion, their restrictions will be invalid in the face of this federal law if that federal law is constitutional. However, that federal law did not pass. It failed on a, well, it was, I think it was a 48 to 47 vote. And again, by or rather Manchin voting with the Republicans. And that was simply to end the closure, not on the bill itself. But that didn't get through. Now, the question was, has been asked, why are they suddenly looking to Congress right now? I thought they were saying that this is a matter for the Constitution. And Congress has no power to decide this. Well, that's what they've been saying to some extent. However, they believe that abortion is a constitutional right. Now, if there's a right that is guaranteed by the Constitution, then Congress or state legislatures cannot restrict it, absent a compelling interest. However, they can go further than the court has gone and that the Constitution has gone in protecting that right. And so that would be their argument, because they believe, wrongly, but they believe the Constitution protects the right to abortion, and this is their way of securing that protection. What they're thinking is that the court has been giving this protection since Roe versus Wade, but with the Dobbs versus Jackson case that is before the Supreme Court right now, the the court is probably going to decide sometime by before the end of June that protection may no longer apply. The court may overrule or greatly restrict Roe versus Wade, in which case they would need a federal law like this. Regardless, the point is they didn't get it. Constitution Classroom. We are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law, and there's a lot to cover today. So we're, we're putting our, our Ten Commandments discussion on hold for now, but uh, Colonel, I understand that uh, there's a consideration for the Supreme Court, an opening on the Supreme Court as it is. Um, what yes, there is. That? As I said, we will put the Ten Commandments on hold. Now, we could just make a quick reference. The commandment we we're going to be talking about is, Thou shalt not steal. And we see President Putin trying to steal a country, and thou shalt not kill. And we see him engaging in what I would call mass murder here, but we'll cover that at another time. But look at a few events that are going on today. And one of the things I thought we might focus on in this hour would be the change of personnel now in the United States Supreme Court. That one of the liberal justices on the court. Justice Breyer has announced his retirement. And so President Biden has 
appointed or nominated person to take his place, and that is a Judge Kataji Brown Jackson, or she just usually goes by Judge Jackson. She is a judge on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Now, there's something that I think really kind of jeopardized, not jeopardized, I should say, but tainted this appointment from the very beginning. Let's say that a president were to announce that in protest against what President Putin is doing in Ukraine, he is appointing a Ukrainian-American to the Supreme Court. Now, many of us might have a little thought of approval of that, but at the same time, we would want to know, is this the most qualified person available? And point of the matter is, the nominees for the Supreme Court should be based on who is most qualified, not based on whether one is Ukrainian or male or female or anything else. And yet, President Biden began the selection process weeks before he actually announced who it was going to be by saying that he was going to select a black female to be the next justice of the Supreme Court. Now, what this does is it narrows the pool considerably. First of all, it narrows it to members of the black race who are a little less than 20% of the population as a whole and far less than 20% of lawyers as a whole. And black females, well, most of most black lawyers are male, black females still fewer than that. So he has arbitrarily narrowed the field here as to who the prospective nominee could be to a very small segment. And basically he said to all those who are not black and all those who are not female, you need not apply no matter how good your credentials may be, you will not even be considered. And the sad thing about all this then is that if Judge Jackson is confirmed, then there'll always be the feeling that she was confirmed because she was a black female, not because she was the most qualified person available. Now, to look further at her, we see some interesting qualifications. First of all, she is a Harvard Law School graduate, and up until Justice Gorsuch came on the court, every one of the justices in the court were graduates of either Harvard or Yale, and this puts us back to that tradition again, which means that they're not representative of the legal community as a whole. I, I can assure you that you go out into the legal community as a whole, that the overwhelming, overwhelming majority are not graduates of Harvard or Yale. But anyway, so it's kind of an elitist mentality on the court to say that all of them, with the exception of Gorsuch, are Harvard and Yale graduates. She had some interesting credentials. She'd been a public defender, which might help to see the defendant's perspective in cases like this. She had been on the U.S. Sentencing Commission, a commission to look at what statute provides as maximum minimum sentences for various offenses, and she indicated a strong desire to reduce the penalty for crack cocaine. There's been an argument that 
that penalty for crack cocaine is racist because it treats crack cocaine differently from powdered cocaine. And black defendants tend more likely to use the crack cocaine, so it means they're more likely to get stiffer sentences. Others will say that, well, it's justified to treat crack cocaine differently because it is stronger in many cases, it is less safe, you're more likely to get a bad dose with crack cocaine, and so it endangers people's lives more. But at any rate, on the Sentencing Commission, she was for reducing the penalties for crack cocaine. She also served, interestingly enough, as a clerk for Supreme Court Justice Breyer, the justice whom she will be replacing if she is confirmed. Now, several of the things that she has done in the past is she, at one point, wrote an amicus brief. We do that regularly at the Foundation, writing amicus briefs. But she wrote an amicus brief in support of the National Abortion Rights League and several other organizations, pro-abortion organizations, a brief supporting a limit on the rights of pro-life demonstrators to demonstrate against abortion. And she has, in her opinions, as a district court judge there in the district for the District of Columbia, quite a few of her decisions have favored organized labor. I was going to say favored labor, but not necessarily favored labor because labor itself, that is the laboring people, are not necessarily in favor of the unions. But several of her decisions have been pretty strongly pro-union. She was appointed very recently to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, and she has authored only one opinion so far on the D.C. Circuit, and that one was about 24 hours before her nomination to the Supreme Court. But again, that had to deal with abortion rights and supporting abortion. Now, or, I, mean, I mean, labor rights and supporting labor unions. Now, another thing I'd say is that she has written several opinions that seem to support guarantees of free speech. And this could be a positive step. But she wrote these only saying that there is a legitimate question here, and so denying summary judgment or something like this, saying that this at least deserves to be heard, that may be somewhat encouraging. One of the things we should note about her is that if she is confirmed to the court, she will replace Justice Breyer, who is a liberal justice. So this will not change the makeup of the court. The court, as it stands right now, is three liberals, Justice Breyer and Justice Sotomayor and Justice Kagan, and three that we would say are pretty solidly conservative, Justice Breyer, or rather Justice Thomas, Justice Alito, and Justice Gorsuch, and three that lean conservative, Chief Justice Roberts and Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett. And since she would be replacing one of the liberal justices, this would not change that basic makeup. But it would change it in this sense, that it would mean that a liberal justice and Justice Breyer, the three liberals, would be the most moderate of the three liberals, that Justice Breyer, who is older now, and I believe he's around 80 or thereabouts, and would not probably be on the court for too much longer, 
she would replace him as one who would likely be in the court for several decades to come. So a confirmation of Judge Jackson to be a justice would be a victory for liberals, but it wouldn't be the kind of really change the makeup as it would be if, say, she was replacing Justice Thomas or somebody like that. Anyway, so we'll see how outcome is. Several Republicans voted to confirm her to the D.C. Circuit, but they usually give her greater, greater scrutiny when she's up for the Supreme Court. Welcome back to Constitution Classroom. We're with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, I know you have been uh, you've been waiting to say a few things about to the situation in Ukraine. I'm anxious to hear what you have to say. We talked about it a little bit last week, but today, of course, a lot of things have happened since last week. And so let's look at what's really going on there. And the question is, should our response is... Americans, as Christians, as constitutionalists to be to what is going on in Ukraine. Well, the first thing, President Putin has been making the statement that the Soviet Union created Ukraine. They're not really a country by themselves. By the way, I should add, having been there back in 2015 several times to lecture on constitution reform, I will say that People there really don't like to be called the Ukraine. They would rather be called Ukraine. They say the Ukraine sounds like a region. We are a country. We are a nation. So we should be called Ukraine, even though the term itself might seem just a little bit abrupt. But for Putin to say that the Soviet Union created Ukraine is utter nonsense. In fact, you can go back to Ukraine and go back to the days of it being a Slavic kingdom back in the 5th and 6th centuries A.D. You can go on to the 8th century A.D. with Rurik and the Viking warriors that came down the Dnieper River on their way to Constantinople and founded a trading post there at Kiev, although it had been a Slavic post before that, but became the Rosh, warriors that ruled out of Kiev, and for a while it was Kiev that was really the the capital, the center of the Russian state as a whole. In fact, it would be just as easy to say that Ukraine created Russia. Now that sounds strange too, because you think of Russia as this huge nation that extends through Eastern Europe and all across Asia to the Pacific and Siberia and everything. In fact, traditionally, Russia was not that big. Russia was just an area in Eastern Europe until about the 1500s when Russia began to expand, and they didn't expand all the way to the Pacific Ocean until the 1700s. And in fact, there'd be a time when Ukraine, as it is today, would have been as large as Russia. But at any rate, there was some conflict throughout history in the Middle Ages as to what the leader of the Russian-Ukrainian nation would be, whether it be Kiev or Moscow. And Ivan the Terrible in the 1500s comes in. And Ivan the Terrible wanted to make Russia into a more powerful state, 
he had a view that he called the view of the, the view of Holy Russia and the view of the Third Rome. The idea that originally Christianity centered in Rome, and then with the fall of Rome to the barbarians in the four and five hundreds, then Constantinople becomes the second Rome, the center of Roman Christianity. And then with the fall of Constantinople in 1453, then Moscow becomes the third Rome. And Russia was always called Holy Russia because the idea of Russia being separate from Orthodox Christianity was inconceivable in those days. After the Viking warrior Rurik, then you have the Viking king Vladimir, as they would call him in Kiev, or as they would have called him back in Scandinavia, Valdemar, but Vladimir the Great, or Saint Vladimir as the church calls him, is the king who Christianized the Ukrainian and Russian peoples, and they would not be clearly separated at that time, but they were pagan at that time, and he believed they needed a monotheistic religion. He brought some Jews in to give a presentation on the Jewish religion, and his conclusion was that, I like your law, but I don't think your God has treated you very well for the last thousand years, so I'm not sure if this is what we want. And he called Muslims in. And after their presentation, he said, well, I like your monotheism, but your law seems overly strict, and we couldn't survive a Russian winter without pork and vodka, and so no thank you. The Roman Catholics came in to give a presentation, and he said, I like your theology, but something about your religion seems very cold. And then some of his boyars or nobles came back from Constantinople, where they had been at the Hagia Sophia, that is, the cathedral of the Orthodox Church. They had seen how magnificent it was, the icons inside, the priests chanting the incense. And they said, we knew not whether we were in heaven or on earth. And so Vladimir invited a presentation from the Orthodox, and he embraced Orthodoxy. But when we look to, ultimately, the, how Ukraine was taken into the Soviet Union by force, well, they were under communist control then with the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, but didn't like it. One of the things that Putin has been talking about, which is utter nonsense, has been the denazification of Ukraine. Nazification? Wait a minute. Zelensky is Jewish. And some of his ancestors died in the Holocaust. Call him a Nazi is utter nonsense. Now, it is true that at the beginning of World War II, when the Germans came into Ukraine, some of the Ukrainians, particularly in the West, welcomed the Germans, but not because they wanted Nazism, but because they wanted to be liberated from the Russians and the communists. And they finally were in 1992, after the fall of the Soviet Union, and when the Ukraine voted with approximately 91% voting to make Ukraine an independent republic separate from Russia or the USSR.
Now, the Crimea became part of Ukraine at that time, or actually they'd been given to Ukraine by Khrushchev back around 1954, and it's not clear why, but probably because Ukraine was a member of the USSR, they were a socialist republic, and this is partly a way of cementing their relationship with the USSR. Maybe that shouldn't have been done, but it was. And there are states in the eastern part of Ukraine, like the Crimea in the south, and like Donetsk, and like Luhansk in the east on the Russian border, where the people are Russian ancestry, where they speak Russian rather than Ukrainian, and where at least a large portion of them do have Russian sympathies. But that certainly is not true of Ukraine as a whole. Anyway, so that's a little bit of the history. Now, another part of the history that I think is very important, too, is that when the Soviet Union collapsed, the two nuclear superpowers were the United States and Russia, and the third nuclear superpower, or not superpower, but the third most nuclear nation in the world was Ukraine, with all the missiles and warheads that have been left there from the old USSR. And in the early 90s, the United States, under Bill Clinton, pressured Ukraine to give up those nuclear warheads. Ukraine, with some reluctance, agreed to do so, and they went over to Russia at Bill Clinton's insistence in return for a promise from the United States and Britain that we would recognize and absolutely protect Ukraine's sovereignty from any kind of attack. And anyway, that commitment, I think, has been forgotten today, and it's one that we have an absolute duty to recognize. But that brings us to the situation today. You have these eastern states, or, or before I get to that, let me talk about the Maidan Revolution. This took place in 2014, just before I came over. And with the Maidan Revolution, you'd had a pro-Russian government that had been imposed upon the Ukrainian people. There were widespread demonstrations against this government. Finally, the pro-Russian president ordered his soldiers to shoot demonstrators. Over a hundred of them were killed in Maidan Square. And if you go to Maidan Square, you will see all around there, where there are monuments erected to each one of these, the martyrs, the heavenly hundred, as they call them, and with their pictures with usually Ukrainian Orthodox crosses and so on around them and so on, and also bricks around them. More about those bricks in just a moment. our final segment today of Constitution Classroom. We are here with Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. And uh, I believe you have some more to say on the, on the matter of Ukraine. 
Well, let's try to continue some discussion. There are a lot of things about Ukraine today that I think the media is missing. And many times you find that those anchors and so on in the media are pretty shallow as far as their understanding of the historical situation or their understanding what the situation is on the ground, which you can see if you are actually there. But I was just talking about the bricks, that when you see these monuments to these heavenly hundred, the martyrs there from the Maidan Square massacre of 2014, each one of those has these loosely stacked bricks around them. And those are there to remember the nature of the revolution. What they had done, the citizens of Ukraine, particularly of Kiev, had picked up bricks off the street to throw at the pro-Russian soldiers of the government. That's how they threw them out. Their weapons were bricks and stones because they did not have private ownership of firearms. Remember that next time you hear somebody want to take away our guns here in the United States. But at any rate, so I saw that when I was there and that and so many other things that I saw. By the way, just to give you one idea, the sentiment when I was there at the time, you would see places there in downtown Kiev where merchants on the street, where they had these anti-Putin and anti-Russian and anti-communist t-shirts they were selling and so on. They were also selling toilet paper with Putin's picture printed on it. And giving you a little idea of what they thought of Putin at that time, and that opinion is even worse today. But there was some corruption in the Ukrainian government. And you look to this man, Volodymyr, which is another way of saying Vladimir, but when you look to him and his history, they just say he's a comedian. Yes, but one of his roles in television, by the way, he'd been quite an entrepreneur in building a television station and building a whole television empire. He was quite a capable businessman, but he was an actor himself. There was one TV series called Servant of the People, in which he played the part of a man who decided he wanted to fight corruption in government And so he ran for president and was elected. This is all in this TV series. And throughout the series, then, he plays the part of this president. And probably that was some of the way he grew into the role himself and decided, well, there's corruption here in the government of Ukraine right now. Somebody needs to run for president. I can do it. And he did. And he did have a crusade to clean up the government. And anyway, so... I think a lot of people have been really amazed at what a strong stance he has taken there. In fact, people thought that Kiev would probably fall within a couple of days and the rest of the country very shortly thereafter, but they did not. And part of the reason they didn't is with the strong leadership of Zelensky. And with Zelensky, as he takes that stand there, he's offered transportation out of the country for his safety. His response is, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. And statements like that, other statements of his, have mobilized and galvanized the people of Ukraine, as well as establishing him as an international hero. I'm told that right now his popularity in Ukraine is well over 90%, and that is not at all surprising.
But then you look to what they have done is handing out thousands upon thousands of automatic rifles to any citizen who's willing to take one. And these included women, actresses, and beauty queens. It's included boys as young as 14, men as old as 80, being willing to take a gun and fight for their country. And so far, Russia has been slowed down a great deal. They've inflicted some very severe damage. But the Ukrainians have held on amazingly well. Their forces are well-trained. And in addition to the training they have, they also have the volunteer militias, which number up to about 150,000. And they have some degree of training, but great deal of motivation. And they're out there, especially out in the rural areas, fighting. Within the cities, you just have citizens taking up arms themselves. They also have what's called the Ukrainian diaspora, which is of the Ukrainians that have been dispersed throughout the world, many in the United States. Many of those are returning to Ukraine to help fight for their country, also providing financing, which Ukraine needs. We've seen the response from the West so far, and that response has been, well, not as encouraging as I'd like to see it, but it has been getting stronger and stronger, particularly among the European nations. And Ukraine has sought and now received admission into the European community. I'm not a big fan of that community myself, but Ukraine's very existence as a nation is at stake, so I understand why they're concerned here. We are seeing Finland and Sweden seeking to enter NATO and at least establishing a relationship with Ukraine as kind of a partner of NATO, which might give them greater protection. We're seeing nations like England and Germany being willing to send in weapons and so on. The United States providing some support. Sanctions are being imposed. And the sanctions, well, may have some effect. I'm not that impressed with sanctions. But as I see it right now, there are two things that need to be done. One of these is to persuade Putin that he has made a mistake. And he may already be thinking about it. He's not going to admit it, and he's not going to back off unless we give him a way to back off. But he may be thinking, well, this is turning out to be a lot harder than I thought, and maybe I shouldn't have done this, or at least maybe I shouldn't have gone this far. Now, if he's convinced of that, the next step is to give him a way that he can change course without losing face. A couple things that I think could be done there. One, again, with those eastern provinces, Luhansk and Donetsk, he could, we could get Zelensky to agree that we will give them status as semi-autonomous oblasts or provinces, or possibly allow internationally supervised elections as to whether they would like to stay part of Ukraine or be in Ukraine as autonomous provinces or be independent states, or be part of Russia, and abide by the results. And possibly an agreement could be reached there where Putin could then say, well, that's what I came in for. I came in to protect our Russian people there in eastern Ukraine. And we have now achieved our objectives, so mission accomplished, and we are going home. And 
Possibly he can do that with, without losing face. Anyway, standard psychology and standard negotiating tactics may need to be used there, but those are some things that can be done. There are also opportunities for those who want to fight for Ukraine and on the website of the Ukrainian embassy in the United States, there's a place you can go to download a form for if you want to sign up to fight for Ukraine, you have to be interviewed and meet certain qualifications and the like. I've even wondered whether they could use me as a chaplain, but at age 76, probably not. But at any rate, the point of the matter is there are things we can do. There are people in need of help, and there are organizations. You can find them online. My church last Sunday, we had a congregational meeting, and a little bit to my surprise, one of the members of the congregation suggested that the church send a donation to a relief agency in Ukraine. And so we have picked out one to send a donation to or a small church, and it's a small donation, but every little bit helps. I have a man that served as my translator when I was over here. He is now in the United States on a project, and that was not well-timed because his wife and children are back in Ukraine. He says they are well as of now, but he's not able to get back to them. But anyway, so pray for him. And I would simply say, keep alert as to what is going on and give the people of Ukraine your support and your prayers and urge the president to do more than just sanctions. I would say, I, I would not say send in boots on the ground. The Ukrainian leaders don't even seem to want that. They seem to think that they can handle that part themselves. What I think we could do is provide more air support. For example, you've got this 40 mile long convoy bringing troops up and American air support could wipe out that convoy. That's something to consider. But at any rate, pray for Ukraine, because our freedom, everybody's freedom is at stake with Ukraine.